least I don't think I am. So we'll see what happens. But I so appreciate all the guys uh, that have done just a ton of work, all lay people, uh, trying to get our sound situation straightened out. Uh, we've been moving a lot of equipment in and out of here the last few months. Uh, they're working just a lot of hours getting stuff moved over, getting this system uh, in a place where it's usable. Nobody's more frustrated when that kind of thing happens than them uh, because of the time they put in here, and uh, I, I appreciate the work that they do very much. And uh, these sound systems, they just are temperamental. All right, First Peter chapter 3. If you have your Bible, please turn there. And as we get into our passage for this morning... The words of King Solomon came to mind where he wrote in Proverbs 31, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And maybe you saw it, maybe you bought it, maybe you're a subscriber, I don't know, but this week People Magazine released its issue naming the world's most beautiful woman. Now, I don't pay attention to People Magazine. I also don't have a clue how they could determine such a thing. I don't think they use Proverbs 31 as their guide. I'm not really sure their criteria or the metrics that are involved. I assume that it has something to do with cultural standards and reader demographics. I'm certain that, that selling magazines is probably the biggest factor in the whole thing. But whatever the case may be, I couldn't help but see how People Magazine is defining beauty, and I couldn't help but sort of set it up against how today's scripture passage defines beauty. As I had these words rolling through my mind all week and then saw that news story come out, I couldn't help but contrast the two things. Let's read it together. It's 1 Peter chapter 3. And I don't know if the lights are the issue with our sound, but if they could be turned on, that would be great. Um, all right, 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter writes... Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden pers person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious." For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. So this is the first of two messages where I am going to talk about marriage. Today is a message dealing mostly with wives, and then next week mostly dealing with husbands. But whether you're married or unmarried, husband or wife, I think there is truth here in both of these message for, messages for you to consider. I think there's application to be made. But first let me make this clear, because this is important. Marriage is God's idea. Our culture has tried to reshape marriage and redefine marriage and test the limits of marriage, but God is the one who created marriage. Marriage. It is not a social construct. In the beginning, God designed marriage to be a union between a man and a woman. And in Scripture, we see that marriage is given great importance and really tremendous weight. In fact, the Bible is not the same book without the concept of marriage. Not even close. Genesis 1 and 2. In the very beginning, what do we have? We have marriage introduced. Adam and Eve in the garden, that's how the book opens. 
Revelation chapter 20. So fast forward all the way to the end of the book. What do we have? We have a marriage, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Christ the bridegroom united with his bride, the church. We're going to be a part of that scene one day. But then you go back to Genesis, and really throughout the Old Testament, you essentially, what you have is a story of a family. And that family is traced by its marriages, starting with Abraham and Sarah, and then Isaac and Rebekah, and then Jacob and Rachel, and on and on the story goes, unfolding before us as we read the Old Testament. But then back into the New Testament, you go to John's Gospel. And the first miracle that Jesus performed in John chapter 2 was when he rescued a wedding reception that had gone flat because they managed to run out of wine. And then back to the Old Testament we go, to the wisdom books, to the Song of Solomon. We have the richest marriage proposal ever written. The Bible is a book about marriage. It's not only about marriage, but marriage is this theme that is woven throughout its pages. Consider this. Consider that Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, they all talk about marriage. Those are the heavy hitters of the New Testament, right? Well, they all, of, all of them give teaching on marriage. Consider Jesus in Matthew 19. Jesus provides there what I call a metaphysical description of marriage. You remember the Pharisees, they had found the Lord Jesus, and, and they asked him a question about divorce. It seems out of the blue as you read through the book, but they figure what they're figuring, what they're thinking in that moment, is if they can get Jesus to talk about divorce the way John the Baptist talked about divorce, then they might get Jesus to suffer the same fate as John the Baptist, which is to have his head cut off. They don't really care about Jesus' teaching, his views. His answer isn't to them going to be instructional. They just want Herod to arrest him and eventually for him to wind up dead. But Jesus, he outsmarts the Pharisees. He takes them back to the beginning, again to Genesis, and explains that marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman. And if within that covenant, those two individuals become one flesh. So the, the oneness principle that undergirds marriage, it is introduced by Jesus. And I don't know how to actually describe oneness or define oneness in marriage. I can't really explain it to you, but I can tell you that it's real. And if you're married, you've experienced the reality of oneness. And oneness is the way that Jesus chose to talk about marriage. But then you look at Paul. Paul, in Ephesians 5, Paul provides what I call a theological description of marriage. He says to husbands, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he says to, 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 uh, to the men again, lay down your lives in sacrificial service to your wives. And then alongside that, he says to wives, hey, submit and follow that loving servant leadership from your husband just as the church submits and follows Jesus Christ. Paul's description of marriage is very theological. In Ephesians 5, he, he essentially teaches that, that a godly marriage is a marriage that displays the gospel. And that point right there, that is why we as Christians should be passionate about God's design for marriage. Because when you mess with marriage, when you tweak it or redefine it or allow for things like no-fault divorce or say that anyone can be married to anything, when you do that with marriage, you're actually messing with the gospel. And because we care about the gospel as people who have pinned our very hopes and lives upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, we then care about marriage and how it's defined in our culture. 
So Paul anchors marriage theologically. He connects it very significantly to the gospel. And then you have Peter. Here in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter has a practical word for marriage, which makes all the sense in the world because Paul wasn't married and Jesus was not married, but Peter was married. We even have record of Peter's wife accompanying him on some of his uh, ministry and missionary journeys. And so Peter moves the conversation out of the metaphysical mystery, out of the theological density, and into very practical territory. That's where Peter takes his words on marriage. And he starts with wives here in, 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 in verses 1 through 6. Husbands, we're going to get to you next week in verse 7. And I'll explain next week why Peter spends six verses talking to wives and only one verse talking to the husband. So wives, make sure your husband comes back for that. No excuses next Sunday. But there's three parts to this passage, the one we have in front of us today, verses 1 through 6. And therefore, there's three parts to this morning's message. We have an exhortation, an encouragement, and an example. So verses 1 and 2 is the exhortation. And the exhortation has an overriding principle. This principle governs the entire passage. And then there's also this purpose that's outlined within the exhortation. But first, the principle. The clear principle being presented here, it may not be a popular principle. It may be a principle that, that people in our broader culture see as outdated or even cruel, but it starts with the word likewise. So likewise what? Likewise who? Well, by using the term likewise, Peter is continuing on with a truth that he's already presented. We've already talked about what Peter is referring to in these recent weeks. And the preceding truth, what we've already discussed in the weeks leading up to this message, is, is the truth about the submission or the, the submissive action of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the second person in the Godhead. Jesus' existence and sonship to the Father, that is eternally established. Jesus is God. He is God's Son. He has forever been so. He will forever be so. Equality with God is what Jesus has as a member in the Trinity. However, equality with God is not something Jesus wanted to grasp or hold on to tightly. We can read Philippians 2 and get an understanding of this. Because what Jesus wanted was submission to the will of the Father. That was the posture of his life. It's why he came. Subjection underscored the entire incarnational project, which is Jesus' arrival, his coming, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And that subjection, within that framework, it culminated with the cross. It, it culminated with 1 Peter 2.22. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That's what the Lord of the universe subjected himself to. And since he did that, since he subjected ultimately we Christians then can follow his example. We can submit ourselves to every human institution, no matter the emperor or the governor or the mayor or the principal or the meter maid or whoever, we can submit. We can also submit in the workplace. If, if the boss is unfair and treats us harshly, we can submit because Jesus Christ has submitted. Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands. Again, the energy and example for this action is Jesus Christ. 
the fuel for submission, the, the fuel for everything else in the Christian life, it is the gospel. It's what Christ did on our behalf. It's the way he subjected himself. We follow his lead. Notice a couple of things that go along with this. First, this is not a statement. When, when a passage like this, when 1 Peter 3 says, wives, be subject or submit yourself. This is not a statement about inferiority or value. Why do I say that? Because again, the example, the ultimate example for, sub, for subjection and submission is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the supreme being in the universe, and he, even being that, subjected himself to humanity, to serving sinners, to Roman execution. And so knowing that, keeping that in mind, we can know that this exhortation for wives to submit, it isn't about inferiority. Women are not inferior to men. Not at all. Just as Christ had equality within the Godhead, women, being made in God's image, have equality within humanity. There is no greater sex. Also, notice the qualifier. Qualifier. Women, be subject to your own husbands. So women aren't to be sub subjected and, and submissive to all men or to all husbands. No, no, no. The text says to their own husbands. And so what Peter is underscoring here, he's saying there is functional order in God's creation. Citizens are, are to be subject to government. Servants are subject to masters. And wives are subject to to husbands. We all submit, all of us do, all the time to these different functional hierarchies and this one here applies to the wife in her marriage. And to the wife who says, well, I don't like that or that's not cool with me or to the one who says, well, this is only applicable to this time period, not all time periods. We've sort of moved on. We're past that. We're much more advanced now. That's a bad conclusion because of verse 7. We're going to talk about that next week, but we have to look at it at least to make this point. Verse 7 says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, is verse 7 only applicable to Peter's context and not our own modern context? No, of course not. Of course it's applicable today. Let's not try and play that game with Scripture where we say, well, it worked then, but it doesn't really work now because where do you stop and start with all that? Let's take it for what it says and apply it. I'm reminded of when Paul, Paul in 2 Timothy, he's talking about the, the submission of the wife where Paul explains the reason for this arrangement. And when he makes that explanation, he, he doesn't appeal to where the culture's at or to a certain scenario in the church that, that Timothy is serving in. Paul, he goes, to make his point, he goes back to creation he says, because of the order of creation, because Adam was created first and, and, and Eve was brought forth from him, wives, you are to submit to your husbands. So married people, there is something embedded in how God created and designed you and your relationship for it to work this way. Peace and order will prevail within this arrangement. Both individuals will flourish and live out God's design. Oneness will be better illustrated. The gospel will be preached when this functional hierarchy is embraced. Again, not inequality, not inferiority, 
just functional roles. And both roles, here's what we have to actually be convinced of, both roles are equally important. Right? So you don't just have the, the, the leader in the home, oh, that's the important role. No, 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 no. That's just a role. You have that role, and then you have the submissive servant supporting role, the helpmate role. They're equally as important. They're just very different in many respects. So what of the purpose? Let's talk about the purpose for this exhortation. We see it in verses 1 and 2, so that even some who do not obey the word might be won by the conduct of their wives. That's the purpose. So the issue is there are women in the churches of Northern Asia Minor, just as there are many women in churches today. These women are believers in Jesus Christ, but their husbands are not. And since the culture of the first century was for the, for the woman to, to follow the religious preference of the husband, these women in these churches, they're asking, well, should I leave him? Should I condemn him? Should I just sort of pretend and play along that I believe what he believes? This is, this is really complex. How do I follow Jesus when my husband does not follow Jesus? These are good questions. And so Peter says, first of all, stay there. God can use you there. But notice, Peter first points out that these husbands, even if these husbands, he adds, some of them do not obey the word. And implied in that statement is that they've heard the word and not followed the word. They've heard the word, likely they've heard it from their wife, and they've not trusted in Christ. And so because of that, wives, he's saying, there's no reason to beat him over the head with the Bible. You're not to be overbearing and nagging about the gospel. He's rejected the word. Okay, that's where he's at. Now you are to live in a way that wins him to it. There's a great example of this from church history. You, you've heard me reference Augustine before. Augustine is one of my favorite theologians of all the theologians from the church's first 500 to 1,000 years, Augustine is probably at the top of my list, and in terms of significance and influence, he's probably at the top of most people's list. Almost everything that Calvin and Luther ever wrote, they repackaged from Augustine. Anyway, Augustine lived the first 31 years of his life as a hedonist. He did not keep himself from any pleasure. Pleasures of every kind he engaged with. But his mother was a believer in Jesus. And she earnestly, she, she prayed for Augustine, and he knew it. He knew that she prayed for him. And anyway, he, he eventually, Augustine, he was converted through a somewhat miraculous reading of the book of Romans. God just spoke to him and said, take and read, and, and the Bible was open to Romans. And he read it and was converted. Anyway, Augustine writes in his spiritual biography a book titled The Confessions of St. Augustine or St. Augustine. He writes in one section about his mother, Monica. And he writes about the relationship that she had with his father. His, his father was not a kind man. He was a terrible husband. But listen to how Augustine describes the actions of his mother toward his father. And when he writes in Confessions, he, he writes addressing God as you. So as I say you here, he's talking to God. Talking about Monica, 
he says, she served her husband as her master and did all she could to win him for you, speaking to him of you by her conduct by which you made her beautiful. Finally, when her husband was at the end of his earthly span, she gained him for you. It's a beautiful testimony, isn't it? A godly woman, through her respectful and pure conduct, saw her son and her husband won to Christ. Don't lose the force of this position, folks. Don't, don't lose the kind of influence this kind of wife can have. Some men entering heaven, maybe some of you in this room, when you enter heaven, you will owe your very salvation to the honorable conduct of a wife who was determined to live out her days in real, costly, faithful submission. Worldly, wicked husbands have been saved through the example of women who, who powerfully and mysteriously and without fear learned to entrust themselves to God's care. I can't think of a more encouraging word for many of the women in this church today who are giving everything they have to follow Christ in very difficult circumstances as they are in the close presence of unbelieving husbands. However, before I move on to the next text, or the next group of texts, I need just to say a few things about what submission does not mean for the wife. Because this text here, it has been abused by domineering husbands and chauvinists for a long, long time, and we need to be clear on what submission is not. Submission does not mean if your husband tells you to abandon your faith in Christ, you should submit and do so. That's not, that's not what this text is saying. That's not what any text in the New Testament is going to say. It does not mean if your husband asks you to sin, you should go along with him and sin. It does not mean you should always agree with your husband and never disagree with him or never present a differing viewpoint. That's not submission. Submission does not mean that if a husband is unfaithful to you that you are left without biblical recourse. It does not mean you have to endure a cruel and abusive relationship at all costs. None of that is the submission that's being called for here. The submission being called for here is the same kind of submission called for in the other categories that we looked at in chapter 2. Because we are a people who emulate Jesus, we see that Jesus entrusted himself fully to the one who judges justly. And whether you're a citizen, an employee, or a wife, if you look to Jesus, you don't have trouble with submission, even if your husband's an unbeliever. Let's move on to the encouragement that goes along with this exhortation. There are two sides to this encouragement, a negative side and a positive side. The negative encouragement is at the start of verse 5. Do not let your adorning be external. So now, straight away, let me put to rest what many of you might be thinking. This does not mean you can't wear jewelry or style your hair or wear nice clothes. It doesn't mean that. Peter is not prohibiting clothes. Clothes are good. You should wear clothes, right? This is simply a matter of emphasis. Peter wants Christian women to not be overly concerned about external beauty. Again, the call in this whole book is to be faithful exiles, to, to recognize that this world is not our home, that what we believe about Christ and because of our allegiance to Christ, we will be at odds with the prevailing worldview. 
And just as today, women in the first century, they were, they were completely over, top, over the top with their hairstyles. His, historians write about their, their sort of elaborate beehive, you know, Marge Simpson sort of hairdos with, with jewelry and ornaments. They had all sorts of things that they would weave into them. And, and then fashion was, was apparently just as prominent as it is today. Women throughout the Roman Empire saw these fashions, what they wore. They, they looked at all of that jewelry as of, of first importance. And so today, as you, as you walk by the magazine rack, as you're trying to check out at the grocery store, and you, you see the women's magazines and the little headlines on them, what to wear and how to do your hair and what jewelry to accessorize with, it's the same thing. The emphasis on external adornment is so out of balance. You know, Anytime there's an award show on a Sunday evening, man, all Sunday afternoon, what is it? It's a parade of what people are wearing and how they're doing their hair and what kind of jewelry they have on. So out of balance. But, at the same time, don't be Amelia Bedelia about this verse. Okay? You remember Amelia Bedelia? She's a children's book character. She's the household servant to Mr. and Mrs. Rogers. And and Amelia took everything that she heard hyper-literally. So she would put real sponges in her sponge cake. Or or she would have to be told to undust the furniture because to dust it would be to put dust on it. That was Amelia Bedelia. And so an Amelia Bedelia interpretation of this verse would leave women without any braiding of their hair, without any wearing of jewelry, or without any wearing of clothing. And that's not what Peter's advocating. What Peter's really doing here is he's helping wives. He's calling them to even greater freedom. The the culture thinks the Bible calls women to a kind of slavery, doesn't it? But here, here's a great example of the Bible calling women to freedom from oppression. You know, the culture puts amazing pressure on women to look a certain way, to dress a certain way, and and women who do not measure up to the cultural standard of beauty or body type, you know, they're they're left to feel ugly and unlovable and inferior. And so Peter comes along and he says, let me tell you about true beauty, ladies. Let me unshackle you from the world's oppressive system. You think I'm talking about submission to your husband being an issue. Let me tell you, you're submitting to things that are ruthless in your life right now. Which leads to the positive encouragement there in verse 4. The positive encouragement is, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. What What makes a Christian woman truly beautiful? It's the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. There's a lot to ponder in that statement, isn't there? What is unfading beauty? That's beauty that doesn't, you know, doesn't depend on, on mascara or eyeshadow or lipstick or the, or the finest fashion. It's beauty that is just as beautiful when you're 57 as you were when you were 17. It's unfading, and therefore it never goes out of style. It never has to be replaced. And, and within this, this is how women get more beautiful as they grow older. Some of you are examples of this. Your, your gentle and quiet spirit shines through so that maybe your 
physical beauty diminishes, at least in your eyes, but your inner beauty remains and actually grows. And in the truest sense, you are more beautiful in the end than you were ever at the beginning. Ladies, don't you want that said of you? Don't you want that observed of you? If you do want that kind of beauty, measure how much time you spend in front of the mirror versus how much time you spend in this book. Measure how much time you spend shopping versus how much time you spend praying. And I'm not trying to shame you or guilt you. I'm just saying that a gentle and quiet spirit is not cultivated at the mall. It's, it's not encouraged in a fashion magazine. Again, malls and magazines, they're not evil. They just don't do much for this kind of beauty being described here. And so the motivation for all this is found at the end of verse 4. This inner beauty in a woman, it says, it is precious in the sight of God. It's precious. You know what? other kinds of things the Bible calls precious, at least as it uses this term. It says that the saving faith of one who trusts in Christ is precious. It says that the blood of Christ is precious. It says the cornerstone of the church, Christ himself, is precious. And then it says the gentle, quiet spirit of a godly wife is precious. That's pretty wonderful company, isn't it? Peter then moves on to an example of this kind of wife. The first example is general. The second is very specific. The first example is the holy women who hope in God. The deepest root of Christian womanhood mentioned in this text, if you're wondering where it's really to be found, where it's really cultivated and grown, is hope in God. Holy women who hoped in God. A Christian woman does not put her hope in her husband or in getting a husband. She does not put her hope in her looks. She puts her hope in the promises of God. She's described in Proverbs 31.25 where it says strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs at the time to come. She laughs at everything the future will bring and might bring because she hopes in God. Now, I'm going to make a generalization. This isn't true of every single woman, but most women that I've ever known, they worry a little bit, don't they? And as they grow older, they worry maybe a little bit more. Well, this woman, because of her hope in God, she laughs at the things to come. There is no anxiety. She's entrusted herself to the one who judges justly. John Piper describes this woman saying, she looks away from the troubles and miseries and obstacles of life that seem to make the future bleak. And she focuses her attention on the sovereign power and love of God who rules in heaven and does on earth whatever he pleases. She knows her Bible, and she knows her theology of the sovereignty of God, and she knows his promise that he will be with her and help her strengthen her no matter what. This is the deep, unshakable root of Christian womanhood. And he goes on, he says, Peter makes it explicit in verse 5. He's not talking about just any women. He's talking about women with unshakable biblical roots in the sovereign goodness of God, holy women who hope in God. That's the general profile, the general exemplary example. Then the specific example he gives is Sarah. The Bible tells us that Sarah was strikingly beautiful. So strikingly beautiful that at the age of 65, she was taken by Pharaoh of Egypt to be in his harem. 
And that had happened, if you remember, because Abraham, her husband, he had lied foolishly and said that she was his sister. And the whole scenario, that whole crazy scenario, was repeated again under Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. He tried to take Sarah as his wife when she was 90 years old. What an amazingly beautiful woman she must have been. At 65, at 90, men are still clamoring for her. But here's what you have to see. Her fame in the New Testament, the reason that she's placed here even, and in Hebrews chapter 11 and in other places, it's not because of her physical beauty. It's because of the beauty of her spirit. By a gentle and quiet spirit, she bound the heart of Abraham to herself so strongly that when she died at the age of 127, Abraham was simply inconsolable. He wept and mourned for days and days and days. Now, it does not suggest in this passage or anywhere else in the New Testament that it was Abraham's idea that Sarah call him Lord. If, if any of you husbands go home and insist on your wife calling you Lord, let me just warn you, that will not go well. This was Sarah's idea to call him Lord. In fact, Genesis 